0: is broken. And so chapter six is, if you will, I, if you were here two weeks ago, I said, think of it as a movie trailer. It introduces us to the main characters. It introduces us to the main themes. It, it gives us the basics of the plot of the story that we're about to see. But it is not the story itself. It is not the movie. It is, it is an introduction. And so chapter six leads us through the breaking of the first six seals. The first five seals uh, point us to what is. What is currently true. was true in John's day remains true today. The first four seals introduce us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That is, as God's kingdom is breaking into this world, humanity in its rebellion against God, in its resistance to God will respond and the result will be conquest that is war and violence and famine and death. These forces of chaos that that are making their way across the planet were happening in John's day. They continue to happen. These seals point us to what is. The fifth seal, John looks when the fifth seal is broken and he sees the martyrs. He sees believers, men and women who have trusted Jesus, who have lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. They are under the altar, and they cry out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And the answer they receive, I already mentioned, is you need to wait a little longer because there are more brothers and sisters of yours who will be killed just as you have been. All of that is what is. It was what was the reality in John's day. It is happening today. War, violence, famine, death. Christians who are losing their lives even today because of their faith in Jesus. And then with the breaking of the sixth seal, we no longer are looking at what is, we look at what will be, what is to come. The sixth seal is broken and uh, we, we are looking into the future. We encounter this picture of God's uh, outpouring of God's wrath upon the inhabitants of the earth, upon those who stand in rebellion and resistance to God. And this earthquake symbolizes God's judgment. It is so violent and so large that it it has cosmic implications. And the inhabitants of the earth uh, hide behind the rocks. They hide in the rocks and they cry out, uh, who can stand? So the first five seals look at what is. The sixth seal looks at what is to come. Today we come to chapter 7, which obviously in the the flow of Revelation follows chapter 6. But here we learn what John saw next. Here's what we need to understand. What John sees next isn't necessarily what happens next. It's what John sees next. Verse 1 we read, After this I saw. Not after this, this is what happens next. But the first thing John sees, the next part of the vision actually takes place back in the past. Okay, we, we will see that in a minute. The second part of our vision will happen in the future. It is what is to come. Now, it, it might strike us a little bit as confusing, but it's not. As we make our way through here, I trust if we're paying close attention and if we're asking particularly two questions, where is this happening is this happening on, on earth or in heaven? And when is this happening? Is this happening in the past? Is this present reality or is this future? If we ask those few questions, that will help us as we make our way through here. But the reminder again is that Revelation does not set out to provide us with this chronological A uh, and then B and then C and then D. If we read it that way, we're going to miss things. So that's what we need to remember as we approach the text uh, a few things structurally seems really clear that the content of chapter 7 presented to us is two related visions. The first part, verses 1 to 8, about this multitude of 144,000 who are said to be sealed. The second part, verses 9 to 17, about this multitude that is beyond counting. Now these two visions here, shared one after another, form an interlude in the flow, in the context, the structure of Revelation. Remember, Jesus took the scroll from his Father's hand He has broken six seals. We walk through the breaking of those six seals in chapter 6. There is one more seal that needs to be broken before the scroll will be opened and its contents will be seen. That seventh seal will be broken at the beginning of chapter 8 next week. Chapter 7 forms an interlude. And as I've already said, chapter 7 seeks to answer the question that was asked at the end of chapter 6. As this cosmic earthquake of God's judgment falls and the inhabitants of the earth cry out, Who can stand? Chapter 7 together, these two visions function to answer that question. Who can stand? And who can stand? The people of God. So here's what we need to figure out. We need to figure out two things. What each of these two visions in chapter 7 mean, what each one is communicating, and then how those two parts function together to answer the question, who can stand? Now, before we turn to the details, let me quickly dispel uh, some of the suspense and share with you, in short, what I take these two visions to to be saying together, their relationship with one another. I'll explain how I get to my conclusion in a moment. I believe that these two visions present to us the same thing, only from different perspectives. I believe that these two visions show us uh, symbolically images of the whole people of God. That is all who have put their faith in Jesus. It shows us the whole people of God at different locations and at different points in time. I'll unpack that in a moment. But in response to the question, who can stand, the answer that chapter 7, this interlude in the breaking of the seals provides us, is the people of God can stand. Those who have trusted Jesus for his forgiveness. Those who have become uh, children of the Father through faith in Jesus. They can stand. Those who are redeemed through Christ can stand. So let's turn our attention now to the text and walk through and unpack in some detail. Part 1, verses 1 to 8. 144,000 who are sealed. I want us to ask the question about location. Where are we? Revelation 4 and 5, of course, John came up to this open doorway into heaven. He saw this throne above every other throne. He's looking at the throne room in heaven. He sees the lamb at the center of the throne who goes to the Father and takes the scroll. Chapters 4 and 5 take place in heaven, if you will. Chapter 6, for the most part, the first four seals as they're broken, the four horsemen, happen on earth. Those are forces of war, violence, uh, famine, and death. That those are realities on the earth. Chapter, sorry, The fifth seal is broken, and that takes us to heaven where the martyrs are under the altar, crying out, how long, O Lord? And then the sixth seal is broken, and we're back on the earth as humanity in rebellion against God cries out, who can stand? Who can stand when God's wrath is poured out? So here, the first part of chapter 7, we find ourselves again or still on the earth. John tells us, as I said, not what happens next, but what he sees next. He says, after this, that is, after the sixth seal was broken, after he saw this cosmic earthquake, after the inhabitants of the earth cried out, Who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing in the land or on the sea or on any tree. What is it we are seeing here? Well, our text at this point reflects ancient cosmology. That is, this understanding that the world was flat, that it was essentially a square, that the earth had four corners. Uh, John sees four angels who are at the four corners of the earth, and they are holding back the winds. That is, winds that are clearly poised to, to bring harm to the earth. I want to contend that what we are seeing here is the same thing we saw in the breaking of the first four seals. It's a similar thing. The winds from the four corners of the earth, poised to bring harm on the earth, function in the same way that the four horsemen function. Michael Wilcock writes this It is a new view of the same thing. Daryl Johnson puts it this way The four winds and the four horsemen represent the same reality, forces rising up against the inbreaking kingdom of God. The winds are poised to harm the earth, they represent what happens is god's kingdom breaks in uh, of god's judgments uh, not his end time judgment but god's judgments on human sin as those come in in the same way that as humanity resists god and rebels against god the four horsemen war and violence and famine and death break in like this represents the same thing from a new view the winds are poised to harm the earth but they are currently being held back by these four angels At this point, we encounter a fifth angel. There's four angels at the four corners of the earth. A fifth angel comes from the east. He has a seal of the living God and cries out in a loud voice, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. He says, don't let the winds loose yet. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. This seal is different And the seals that hold the scroll closed. The the seals on the scroll are, imagine, wax blobs that have been dropped along the seam. And probably an insignia from a ring into there. Those hold the the scroll shut. This seal is different. This seal is a stamp of ownership or authenticity. In the ancient world, slaves would be sealed uh, on their forehead. Uh, It was a way of identifying whose they were. Who they were working for. Kind of like branding. Servants of God, those who belong to God, are are his. And this angel says, Do no harm until the servants of God have been sealed. This imagery of sealing actually comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, if some of you are familiar with that. In Ezekiel 9, I've talked about how many Old Testament and biblical uh, allusions there are. In in Ezekiel 9, we read in the text, God is about to pour out judgment on Jerusalem because of their rebellion and their, their wickedness. But before That there are six executioners standing by ready to bring, uh, ready to pour out God's judgment to go throughout the city and and kill those who are in rebellion against God. But first, uh, there is a man with a writing kit, and God instructs him with these words He says, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. That is, before the execution of God's judgment, God sends this man in Ezekiel 9 to mark, put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve over the sin of Jerusalem to mark his faithful servants. This imagery in Revelation comes from there. Do not harm the earth, the land, or the sea until the servants of God have been marked. And of course, this is reminiscent even of a greater event, a story that perhaps more of you are familiar with. That is the story of the Exodus. In the Exodus... On the night of God's deliverance of his people, there was another mark that was placed not on foreheads, but on the doorposts of homes. Jesus, God called his people to sacrifice a lamb and to mark their doorposts with the blood of the lamb so that when the angel of death passed over Egypt, that those homes that had the blood on on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over and lives would be spared. They were marked as his. Here in this story, this is what the sealing is about. Those who are gods are sealed. They are marked as belonging to him, as his servants. I want you to note this, and, and it's so that when his wrath comes out, when the winds are loosed, that his people will be identified as his, that they will be saved from his wrath, not saved from all suffering. We'll see that in a moment, but saved from wrath. Wrath. And note this, the sealing takes place before the winds are released. In theory, before the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride across the planet, bringing the havoc that they will bring. Those who are servants of God, those who put their faith in Jesus, are sealed, marked, before they go through anything else. They are marked and sealed as God's faithful servants. It's at this point that we encounter this number, 144,000. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to identify this group of people. And I won't get into lots of the theories that people have. I I do simply want to say this. Here's what John says. Then I heard the number. Notice, John doesn't see this group. He hears the number. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Now, there are some who believe that we have to interpret this literally, that this is 144,000 uh, Jewish people, and the tribes of Israel, but but I want to contend that that Revelation is a book full of imagery and symbols, and and that why suddenly here do we need to take this uh, in 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 a wooden literal way? I would suggest that that is wrongheaded. Uh, That interpretation that this is 144,000 Jewish people, I would suggest, is problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, why would only a group of Jewish believers be marked with God's sign of ownership? The revelation, after all, was written first and foremost to seven churches in the province of Asia, seven churches that were largely Gentile churches, why would there be a distinction made between uh, the Jewish people who are saved and non-Jew or Gentile people who are saved? Paul in Romans 2 says that the true Jew is anyone, Jew or Gentile, who puts their faith in Christ. In Galatians, he calls all who belong to Jesus uh, the seed of Abraham. Later in Galatians, he says uh, this of the church. He calls the church the Israel of God. In fact, in the Ephesians, Paul uh, makes a great point of saying that, that through Christ, the dividing wall that splits Jew from Gentile has been torn down, making one new people, that is, uh, the, the whole people of God. One new humanity comprised of Jews and Gentiles. So the clear New Testament teaching, I would argue, is not that God is doing one thing with Jewish people and another thing with everyone else. But God has one people, the people of God, one people of God made up of Jew and Gentile people from every nation, tribe, language, and people. Thus, this group of 144,000 from the tribes of Israel must in some way, I've already said this is where I'm going, must represent the whole people of God, the church comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Now, there are three major factors beyond what I've already said that support that interpretation. First is the number 144,000 in itself. Uh, Michael Wilcox says this about the number 144,000. He writes that the number 144,000 is a suspiciously tidy sort of number that is much more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. I think he's right. 12,000 from each of these tribes he he lists. Well, let's think about this number for a second. And I don't want to, kids, you might not want to do math yet, but we're going to do a little bit of math. 144,000 is what? Well, 12 times 12 is 144. We know that, right? 12 is a significant number in the biblical story, right? Why? We've already encountered 24 elders gathered around the throne in chapter 4. And I said there that the 24 elders gathered around the throne worshiping God represent God's whole people. That is, the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament together, 12 plus 12 is 24. 24 elders represent the whole people of God throughout the biblical story. 12 times 12 is 144. Now, 144 times 10, times 10, times 10 is 144,000. Now, what's the significance? Do you remember in the New Testament, Peter comes to Jesus and he he thinks he's being really generous here. He says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Peter thinks he's being really, really generous. Like, my brother sins against me seven times and I forgive him all seven times. Jesus, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? And what does Jesus say to him? Not seven times, but seven times seventy 7 times 7 times 10. What's Jesus' point? Is Jesus saying to Peter, you only have to forgive your brother 490 times? That 491st time when he does something, he sins against you? Let him have it. No more forgiveness. Is that what Jesus is saying? Of course not. 7 times 70, 7 times 7 times 10 is Jesus' way of saying a whole lot. Peter, just keep forgiving him. Keep forgiving him. Here we encounter this number, 144,000. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's a way of saying uh, this is a really, really big group of people. This is the whole people of God. This is 12 tribes, 12 apostles times each other, times 10, times 10, times 10. This is the whole people of God. This is a symbolic way of saying this enormous number that is beyond counting, which interestingly fits exactly with what happens in the second vision where John sees a multitude that cannot be counted. The second detail that supports this interpretation arises from the listing of the tribes. There are in the Old Testament, 18 different listings of the tribes of Israel. John's list here is different than any of them. Uh, John's list has changed in a number of ways. Uh, For for one, John's list is headed by Judah, who was not the oldest. Reuben was the oldest. But John's list here lists Judah at the front. Well, why? Well, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. But there's some other interesting things. John's list of the 12 tribes here includes Joseph. Now, generally, lists include, e- include either Joseph or his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, but this list includes Joseph and Manasseh, not Ephraim. And then if you look closer, it also, this list drops Dan. It doesn't include Dan, who's normally in the list of the tribes. So we have to ask the question, and there's some details we won't get into, but, but why does John do this? Why is he messing with the list of the 12 tribes of Israel? I would suggest because something has happened in the coming of the Messiah. Something has happened that changes the nature of Israel. Uh, John is making a theological point about the nature of Israel. That the list has changed because Israel has now changed. Israel was called, never called, simply so that God would save them. God called Israel to be his people so that through them all the nations on the earth would be blessed. God's goal was always to use Israel as a nation of priests to to make God known in all the earth. And so that all nations might come to relationship with him. Now, through the Messiah, through the coming of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that is exactly what has happened. Here's what Darrell Johnson writes: It's not so much that Israel has been replaced, it is rather that Israel's national boundaries have been abolished. The nation of Israel was chosen to bless all the nations. Those nations now come in and are numbered as the chosen people of God. A third detail. John does not see the 144,000. I noted that already. He hears the number. And the number he hears is the number of those who are sealed. And in the Old Testament, the numbering of God's people always was for one purpose. That was to number those to serve in the army of Israel. Only men of fighting age were counted. You can look in Numbers 1 and 2, read that account. It makes it clear. This first vision in chapter 7 is a vision of God's people, all of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, numbered for holy war. As we read on in the Revelation, we are going to encounter the dragon that represents Satan, and we're going to see, we're going to read of Satan's defeat, and that Satan, the dragon, will be hurled down to the earth and in his rage will make war on the people of God. God's people are numbered for the holy war that they are about to encounter. They are sealed, they are numbered. As Satan resists God, as humanity in rebellion against God fights against the inbreaking of Christ's kingdom, the church, the people of God will get caught in the crunch. And as a result, they will suffer. But, this vision says, they have been sealed. They are secure. They have the name of the Lamb and of the Father upon their foreheads. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Paul uses language of being sealed and speaking of the Holy Spirit, that when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. We become, individually and corporately, the place where God is present, sealed by His Holy Spirit. Just listen to one text in Ephesians. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance And until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Here in the revelation, this first vision, John receives this picture of the whole people of God marked as owned by God, sealed and numbered for holy war because war is coming, but they are securely held in God's hands. Let's turn to the second vision. The first vision takes place in the past. That is, when we come to faith in Christ, we are sealed. We are marked for the holy war that lies ahead. We're looking at the earth, and we're looking in the past. The second vision takes us back to heaven, to the throne room in heaven in the future. The second vision, here's what John writes. He says, after this, again, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I said earlier that this chapter is probably the most comforting passage in all of the Revelation. Why did I say that? Because of what we see here. We see the whole people of God from every tribe, every nation, every people group, every tongue, we see the whole people of God, all those who were sealed, all those who were numbered, now gathered around the throne of the one who sits upon the throne, radiating glory and power and majesty, and the Lamb who was slain, who is at the center of the throne. We see all of God's people throughout the course of history gathered around the throne with the 24 elders and the four living creatures, worshiping the one who alone is worthy of our worship. And it's it's powerful with the second part of this second vision, verse 13. One of the elders comes to John and asks him a question, a rhetorical question. Uh, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And John says, you know. And then that elder answers, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. The word translated tribulation is a word that we encountered in chapter 1 when John introduced himself. He said, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. The word translated suffering there is the word "thlipsis." It's the same word here, tribulation. And it's a word that means pressure, crushing pressure. And here to it is added this adjective mega. We understand that. So John says, or here the elder, sorry, says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation, the mega flipses, the the mega crushing pressure. He's not saying that God's people will be spared that great tribulation. He's saying that they will come out of it that they will come through it. They will be carried through the suffering that lies ahead. Now traditionally this phrase about those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb has been understood as to referencing us being cleansed from sin. Gordon Fee argues that, and I think he's right, that that's not what's being said here. Certainly that's true. That through faith in Christ we are forgiven, we are cleansed of our sin through his shed blood, but Fee's point is that the language of being washed in the blood is not language that occurs anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere in Scripture is cleansing from sin associated with blood. Uh, forgiveness is associated with that, but not cleansing. Blood is always, he, he says, a metaphor for violent death, and he believes, and I think he's right, that this reference here to their washing their robes in the blood of Christ Speaks not specifically to their forgiveness, though that is certainly true, but that's not the point. The point is that it's through their own suffering and shedding of blood, as they follow in the the footsteps of the Lamb who was slain, that they will enter into their glorious rest in His presence. White robes in the ancient world were a symbol of victory. White robes point to their victory through suffering, their white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They follow in the footsteps of the Lamb who was slain. And that makes perfect sense in the context of verse 17. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This vision that God gives to John is of this multitude that is beyond number from every nation and tribe and language and people standing dressed in white, worshiping God, having come through this great tribulation, this mega-crushing pressure through suffering, through martyrdom, through death, but now in God's glorious presence. And our text concludes with this marvelous imagery that comes out of the Exodus. Never again will they thirst. Never again will they hunger. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat. And then just the richness of this imagery, for the Lamb at the center of the throne, the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear safe and secure, gathered around the throne, the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. What marvelous imagery of what lies ahead for God's people. God gives this vision to John to share with the church at a time when they are about to suffer in order to encourage them that they are safe and securely held by Him. So just briefly, what is the implications of this text for us? Let me firstly speak... To any here with us, online or here present, who have not put their faith in Jesus. This chapter, chapter 7, is a chapter that seeks to answer the question asked at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? When God's wrath is poured out, when God's judgment on human rebellion and sin is poured out, who can stand? And the answer is clearly, the people of God. The Bible teaches us that all of us were created by God to know God, to live in a relationship of God, that we were created as his image bearers. We are to reflect the character of God, but every one of us has rebelled against God. We have gone our own way. We've, we've thumbed our noses at God and said, I will live as my own, uh, my own boss, my own God. I will do it my way. We have rebelled. And, and so we stand under God's coming judgment. That is true for every one of us, the Bible tells us. But God in His love for us was not content to leave us there. But He sent His Son, Jesus. God became human. And He lived a life of perfect submission, of perfect obedience to the Father. And then He went to the cross. And He suffered in our place, bearing the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, so that through faith in Him, we might be cleansed, we might be forgiven, we might be credited with Christ's perfection, brought into relationship with the Father, adopted as His daughters, as His sons, sealed with His Spirit, marked as those who are belonging to Him, that we might have the hope that this text gives us. And so if you're here with us this morning and you have not repented, you've not turned from your sin, you've not cried out to Jesus and said, Jesus, you are my only hope. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I want to to live the life that you created me to live, a life in relationship with you. Then you can do that even this morning. Just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. I long for the life that You made me for. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Fill me with Your Spirit. Mark me with Your Spirit. And You will enter into the people of God. This vision, these visions of chapter 7 become Your story. Marked and securely held by God. For those of us who have already trusted Jesus, those who are Christians here already, let me say a few things. This passage speaks about the whole people of God suffering And yet, coming to their eternal rest in God's presence, worshiping Him. I want to say this. This does not mean that every believer will suffer martyrdom. Uh, To read it that way is to read in our own Western individualism into this text rather than embracing the mindset of Scriptures. The, The point of this is that That as God's kingdom invades this earth, as humanity persists in its rebellion and resistance to God, these kingdoms will collide. And there will be this crushing. I don't know if any of you saw on the news. I grew up just minutes away from the Welland Canal. And within, I think, two weeks ago, two ships, I don't know how it happened, collided with each other. Just this crushing. That's what happens as the kingdom of God invades this earth and kingdoms of this earth resist God. There will be this crushing. And the point of these texts is that that the church will get caught in that. The church will suffer. And the church suffers today. Right now, brothers and sisters are imprisoned and suffering and losing their lives for their faith in Jesus. And these words are written to encourage them. And we need to hear these here in the West. We need to hear these. And we need to stand with our brothers and sisters. We need to pray for the church that is persecuted. We, We need to guard ourselves from ignoring what is the reality in many places in the world today. We in the West face a great temptation, our affluence, our our comforts, that we would ignore this, that we would think this is merely theoretical. It's not. And I pray that we would faithfully stand with the persecuted church around the world. Not only that, but... That we would also guard ourselves from letting fear keep us from following what God leads us to do, whether that's for ourselves to go into places that are dangerous, on the other side of the ocean, or maybe in different parts of the city. What is God calling us to do as His people? Because as we go, as those sealed and marked and filled with His Spirit, as we live out the values of the kingdom, as we serve Jesus, we will get caught in the crunch. There will be suffering. There will be pain. There may even be death. But this text, this chapter, these visions give us courage, encouragement, and comfort. As we live out lives for Christ, we may face the crunch, but we have been sealed as His. We receive white robes even through suffering. We experience victory, and we will be shepherded by the Lamb, sheltered by His presence, the presence of God. Never thirsty, never hungry, he'll wipe away every tear let me close with a few comments none of us knows precisely what the specifics will be as the future unfolds before us and i would contend as i've already said the revelation doesn't seek to map out the future in advance for us so that we can see everything that's coming it seeks to prepare us to face whatever comes It warns us to be ready for whatever comes. It calls us to boldly live for the Lamb and the One who sits on the throne. And this chapter encourages us, comforts us, that no matter what suffering may lie ahead for us, no matter how the church in other parts of the world suffers, as citizens of God's kingdom, as people of God, we have been marked as His. We've been sealed. We've been numbered for this holy war, as this clash of kingdoms happens, we will find ourselves caught up in the crunch, but we can do so with confidence. I believe that we stand at a pivotal point in history here in the West. Every empire that rises falls. Our world may well be headed for massive global changes. We may not always enjoy the affluence and comforts that we currently have. We may not always have the religious freedom that we currently enjoy. And as I say those things, perhaps there is a certain fear that starts to work in your hearts. And and I want to say this, that we need not fear. This vision, these visions, this book was given to a church at the end of the first century who were about to face the might, the crush of the power of Rome coming down upon them. We need not live in fear. We can be comforted and encouraged and ready to face whatever comes. Because we are His, we are held safe and secure in God's hands. Amen.